Please turn your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2. For the sake of context, we're going to start at verse 12. We'll focus in on verses 14 through 18. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 reads, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Father, again, we come before your presence asking that you would give us clarity Give us the ability to to learn from you and to hear from you and to be changed by you. And so we do ask that your spirit would be present now working through the ministry of your word in Christ's name. Amen. There's a story told of a young boy who was instructed to sit down multiple times by his parents. I'm sure you've heard it, but after he was told with repeated admonitions, he finally sat down and he said, on the outside, I may be sitting down. But on the inside, I am still standing up. And that story, though it's a perfect illustration, it's very common of us at times. When though we may be doing the right thing, we may be pursuing the exterior action of obedience, but really what goes on at our heart. One of the things we always tell our kids in the home is that they must love each other from the heart. Love others from the heart. And I'm very specific about that terminology because I want you to love, I want you to do the right thing, but I want you to love from the heart. Now, hopefully, by God's grace, they'll learn is that they can't do that in and of themselves. But I do want them, yes, of course I want them to share, right? I want them to do what is right, but I don't want just polite children, right? I don't want just a child who's just doing the right thing just for the sake of just exterior obedience, And I don't want them just to obey for the sake of me, because my authority, well, they do need to submit, but I want them to love others and do what is right because they love what is right, because they love what is good. I want them to obey from the heart because they love the God who has ordained and brought all things to an end, even in their life. I want them to love from the heart. I want obedience from the heart. And you can't love from the heart unless something has been done to your heart. Our conduct in the Christian life, it should be a reflection of our worth. When you think about your conduct and how you live, it ought to be a reflection of your worth. And in fact, the beginning of this section that we read begins in Philippians 1.27, the chapter right before it. But Paul, he exhorts them in 127. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So Paul is most certainly concerned with the conduct of the Philippians. He is most concerned with conduct. But here, conduct doesn't end with just the action. Because he provides here, even after giving this exhortation to conduct, your, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, he provides the, the, the ultimate picture, if you will, of obedience itself. And that ultimate picture was found in the Lord Jesus Christ as he was obedient himself. And not only obedient, but obedient to the point of death. And death on a cross. That Christ was obedient. And Paul's purpose here in the section that we read this morning is to apply the truths of Christ's humility of self-emptying, but specifically now he's applying it through exhortations for us. Because it's true of who Christ is, his obedience, which brought about his exaltation and also our salvation, but because Christ was obedient to the point of death on a cross, how should that influence how we live? Do you see yourselves worthy because of what Christ has done to make you worthy? And now if that is true then, how should our conduct not only align with Christ's likeness, but flow out of our love for this Christ? That Paul is concerned, and he is most concerned with obedience, but obedience from the heart for them as well. So that's why he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says, just, just as you have obeyed, he's, he says you have obeyed, and you will continue will obeying. He, he does want obedience. But then right after that, we can almost maybe say it this way, after telling them they should obey and you should work out, he's really concerned as well with the attitude of that working out. That Paul is also concerned with our attitude of how we obey. He's been speaking about the necessity of obedience, but also the attitude of that obedience. That our obedience should never be heartless obedience. And so I want to just maybe work through this sermon by just answering this question. What should characterize your attitude in obedience? This is an important question to ask, and one that we should not only ask of ourselves, but I pray by God's grace we would also examine ourselves in this. That what should characterize your attitude in obedience, or we can even say this way, what should characterize your attitude in everything? Because when we think of obedience, then we're just thinking about, okay, just Maybe we put it in specific compartments in terms of how I live. But really we can say, what should characterize your, your attitude in everything in your life? Everything. Without exception. What should characterize your attitude? Simply, it's two descriptions. But the first we're going to look at is, should be free, of, free from complaining. Free from complaining, which is found in verse 14. As you see right there in the beginning for us, what does it say in the very beginning of the verse? Do all things, how? Without grumbling or disputing. Now this command, it seems quite random in the train of thought that you've been working through in, in Philippians. Like Paul is writing here about our conduct, about how now we should consider others as, as more significant than ourselves. We look at Christ himself. He's saying, now work out your salvation. And now he just says randomly, okay, now... Don't grumble or complain or dispute. Like it's, it's a little bit awkward in terms of the flow and the logic. That wouldn't be the, 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 most, the sin I would necessarily highlight if I was exhorting someone in their Christian walk. The first sin I wouldn't go after would probably not be to complain. It does seem kind of random. Like, what is he getting at here? 
Why does he get specific with this, with grumbling, with disputing? Like, why this? You would expect some other pressing sin. Like, what about sexual immorality? Right? What, what about greed? What about all these? What about the, the, the top shelf sins that we always go after? Why does he stop here first? One thing I don't think we realize is how much of a respectable sin is that complaining is. Complaining is a respectable sin in many ways. It's one that we overlook. We really don't pay attention to. Like, we look at the big things, but, like, for someone to complain a little bit, to mumble a little bit, you know, that's, that's not a, that big of a deal in, in the grand scheme of things. Like, com- complaining is not that big of a deal. But yet, it's very egregious in the eyes of God. We overlook it and do not realize how egregious it is and how seriously God takes this sin. And so he narrows in on complaining, on grumbling or disputing. And why? Well, let's look at the reason he gives at the beginning of verse 15. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. He says, why? So that you will prove yourselves essentially to be children of God who are blameless, above reproach. So let's ask it this way. If we are children of God, how does that inform our conduct? Because think about it that way. If you are a child of God, how does that inform your conduct? Before the age of smartphones and the accessibility of the Internet, just think about how historically the, the public has viewed children of the president or even children in the royal family. Like, you know, when they're, whenever they're like, publicly portrayed, like, there's a standard that they were held to. And even still, there's standards in the royal family and White House about conduct. But even historically, before like, you can see everything, like, how do you view the children of the president, the children of the royal family? Whenever they were in public, they had a smile on their face, a pristine. There's never any moping. Like, they didn't come out with frowns. They, didn't, they weren't arguing. They weren't disputing with people. And why not? It's, it's unbecoming. Like, you're, you're royalty. You're a son or daughter of the king. Like, you're from the White House. You represent our country. It's unbecoming of you to act of any such way that marks or looks like complaining or moping or anger. Like, as a son, as a child, there's much prestige there. And for us, if we truly are children of God, let's ask the question, who is this God? Who is this God? If we are children of God, who is this God? And the reason why I say it this way, because phrases like that become so familiar in Christianity that we use them just flippantly. That I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. Amen and amen. But let's stop and remember, what does that mean that you are a child of who? Of God. A child of God. And he reminds them, don't grumble, don't dispute why, because so you would prove yourselves, in other words, show yourselves, demonstrate yourselves to be a child of God. And who is God? Is he not sovereign? Is he not good? Is he not gracious? Is he not powerful? Is he not kind? Is he not in control of everything? Do we realize what we're saying when I am aligning myself to be a child of this God? Am I a child of just anyone, or is he a child of God? That this God is sovereign, majestic, he's glorious over everything. 
And if this is your God and you are his child, does this God ever deny you any good thing? Is a child from a father, a good father, ever denied any good thing? Does this God ever deny any good thing? So how should a child of this God conduct himself? Well, that's why he says, without grumbling or disputing. He says grumbling here, the verb used, it's almost kind of seen, and if you say it within the Greek, it's gugosmon, oh, grumbling. It's the, the, the murmuring used in the Old Testament of the Israelites constantly. It's another word, complaining. He says it's grumbling of just, oh, like what, why, uh, not again. Like this, oh, bread again. Can I get some ribeyes? But not just grumbling, but disputing, which is this conflict with each other. And not just conflict over legitimate matters, but conflict with others over just opinions, over personal preferences. And if we were to explore the sin of grumbling, Numbers chapter 11 is just one of the many, many accounts when the Israelites were complaining. They're complaining. And as they're complaining, it says in Numbers 11, now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of them of the outskirts of the camp. Like this, this grumbling here had a response from God. He heard it and it resulted in their death. And it's one of the many times when they're seen grumbling, complaining, and, and the reason why they're grumbling, I think you can see, is why are they grumbling? Like, why do we tend to, to mumble? Why do we, we tend to just groan and just ache about situations in our life? I think verse 4 in chapter 11 of Numbers kind of begins to give us an insight on that. It says that the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? Oh, we remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers, oh, the melons and the leeks and the onions, all the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing, nothing at all for us to look at except this, this, this manna. <laughs> God, would you, this, this is all we have. Like you see where this comes from? It says that they were filled with greedy desires. That the desires from their flesh about what they wanted, what they thought they deserved, what they thought they had, what they thought was even better than what God was giving them. They were just groaning out of that. Oh, what is this? But the reason why they grumbled is because they had greedy desires. As you can see, the DNA of a complaining heart is interwoven with selfishness. It's so consumed with me that when we allow our desires to control us, It just takes a hold, and now we just mumble and groan against the goodness of God. It's an open mockery to his goodness. And really, we grumble because, essentially, if we're being honest, that we're grumbling because God is not doing what I demand him to do. That he is not responding in the way that he must respond. That what he has given me is not okay. Not on my watch. Like, that's at the heart where it's really about self. 
that these Philippians themselves, they may have been prone to complaining themselves. Because Paul said, just the chapter before him, that, that God has been gr- granted you, it's been gifted to you, granted to, to believe upon him, but also to suffer. And so, of course, they were, they were, they were going through suffering. They've been tempted, may even been tempted to suffer and to groan. But here, if belief is a gift, as he says, you've been gifted to believe upon him, but he says also to suffer. So if belief is a gift from God, then we know suffering is also a gift from God. And so what are we doing with the gift of grief by complaining? We're rejecting it. We're despising his good work. But on the flip side, what happens when a child of God, a child of God lives their life not surrendering to the temptation of mumbling or groaning? What happens? Think about it this way. If you're ever flying on an airplane at night, the the dead middle of the night, how can you tell if you're flying over land or water? You don't know. It's dark. But how do you know when you reach land? I see light. I'm no longer in the water because I see light. And in fact, 31,000 feet in the air, you see a porch light. It's one small light, one glimmer of hope you see. And how do you know you're, under land, you're, you're over land now? Because that light stands out amongst everything around it, which is darkness. So what happens when a child of God refuses to complain against the hand of God? What happens? They demonstrate themselves to be light. But light where? Amongst darkness. And that's what he's explaining there for us. Because he says in verse 15, you, you prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. But where? In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you, you're, among whom you appear as lights in the world. He says that you would prove yourselves wise so that you shine in a generation. And he describes it as crooked and perverse. This is not a good classification of the world. And he says it's crooked, it's like scolios, which is where we get our word scoliosis, that it's completely off kilter, having no correct compass of right and wrong. But it's perverse, it's just scandalous, it's filthy. That this here is a dark depiction of a world that rejects the goodness of God, a world that doesn't know God, and so therefore, yes, it's all about what I want. And this world here, he's describing as crooked and perverse. And so Paul wanted them to look like children of, of God. That stand out. And so it although it appears that Paul's maybe being random by highlighting this command of grumbling and disputing, he is being very methodical in his word choice. Because he describes the, the world around them as being crooked and perverse. But that's just not any common term that he would just use. It's really pulling back in the back of Paul's mind from Deuteronomy chapter 32 when he's quoting from Moses' song, the Song of Moses here, which is just a theological poem, really just giving a, a harsh distinction between the covenant people and the covenant breakers all throughout that Song of Moses. And in this Song of Moses here, he, he's highlighting just the sin of Israel and how they complained against God here and how they just grumbled against God. And he says in verse 5 in Deuteronomy chapter 32 that they have acted corruptly toward him, corruptly toward him. That they are not his children. Why? Because of their defect. But are a perverse and crooked generation. Sound familiar? That he says here, when he's speaking of, of unbelieving Israel here, that, that they are crooked and perverse. They've acted corruptly towards him. 
that they're not his children because of their defect, that they complained against him. And Moses saw that himself. He saw it time and time again. And so now Paul's borrowing from, from Deuteronomy 32, 5 in order to exhort them to live and not to make the same mistakes Israel made. That Paul used the language that Moses used to describe Israel, and now he's applying it to the unbelieving world. That Israel, crooked and perverse generation, and now Paul's saying here, you shine out as light amongst a crooked and perverse generation. That we are to stand out, not by what we do necessarily, although that happens, but also by what we don't do. We don't grumble and complain about life and circumstances, et cetera, et cetera. We don't complain that being free from complaining demonstrates our kinship. And how does it demonstrate our kinship? Because we are identifying ourselves under the sovereign hand of God. That everything in my life is a product of his sovereignty, of his providence, that he is directing all things for good. So if that is true in my life, how can I grumble against anything in my life because it's all for good. And so when we choose to sin and gripe against God, we're not just griping against people or just circumstances or the way things are happening. We are grumbling against the God who's brought them in our life. And so when we refuse to grumble, when we do not dispute, we are standing out because everything in this world around us wants to complain about what we're not getting, about what we're entitled to, about what we have a right to do. And did you notice just in this passage the sacrificial motifs, the pictures here? He's just such sacrificial language all throughout these just small four verses here of, 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 of just life here. He, he says that we ought to be blameless children, to be faultless, to be innocent, which is, he says, it's, it's, it's essentially to be uh, pure or unmixed. He says as children we ought to be above reproach. And the same word is used to describe the, the, the defects of animals in Exodus chapter 29 when it's saying that the animal you present as its offering should be above reproach. That Paul himself later in verse 17, he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. That he's just using this, this language of sacrificial language all throughout these small verses here in order to indicate a point here. That our life is not about us. That life is, in a sense, sacrificial. It's, it's to be marked with sacrificial love for the sake of others, for the glory of God. And if that is true, a sacrifice doesn't complain. A sacrifice lays down their life. That resisting grumbling and disputing is more than just not doing something we aren't supposed to do. But Paul sees it here as a preservation of unity. That the preservation of unity demands the death to self for the sake of others. That complaining is a direct attack against the unity of a church. That it's not just because complaining is just annoying or inconvenient, like we shouldn't grumble because it's just, I don't want to hear it. No, no, it goes beyond that here. That is a direct attack against the unity of any church. Like we all know it from even personal testimony, I'm sure, at times, is that in home when there is just animosity and grumbling, complaining, why is it hot in here? Why is he doing it? He took that. Why? It's just, when, it, when that happens in a home, what does that do to the home? Does it unify it? No, it splits it. It divides it. And what happens when a church brings this in? It divides it. 
And what happens as a body of Christ when we are divided, we're grumbling, we're complaining, we're concerned about our own desires and my opinions, how things should run, how it should look, what it should, when we complain about these things, what does it do to the body? It, it, it breaks it, it separates it, and it grieves the head of that body. And so he's concerned about unity here because it's a threat against the body of Christ. Now hear, hear me, folks. Like this, is, this sermon is not a corporal punishment sermon against our church. Like I'm, I'm not trying to bring out or call anyone out. Like our church is very healthy in terms of unity and love. Amen, amen. We've all seen that. Our church is marked with unity and love. But hear me that this command came to a healthy, thriving church as well. That the Philippian church, Paul was pleased with them. He, he praised God for them. That his joy abounded because of their growth. And so if the command came to this healthy church, we must be on guard as a body to not fall into the same sin of grumbling and disputing. If it can happen there, because later on he says in chapter 4, at Udi and Syntyche, exhort them to agree in the Lord. (laughs) If if it can happen in Philippi, it can happen in Oreo Grande. And so we must guard ourselves against any grumbling or disputing that divides the body, that takes our focus off the cross and makes the focus upon ourself, that we must be guarded from that. Because it's issues around this that grieves the Lord's heart and attacks unity and joy within a healthy church body. That seeds of dissension, that they're when they're planted, because it happens in very subtle ways, like, we don't obviously, like I said, it is respectable sin, but even when it does happen, we don't even notice it sometimes. You know, sometimes Francie would call me out graciously at home, like when I'm a little upset about something, and like sometimes she'll say, oh, is your kingdom, your kingdom getting rocked? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like Chris isn't king right now, and I have a problem with that, right? And that's a problem. But it happens in subtle ways. We don't realize when we're grumbling. We don't realize when we're, when we're upset and disputing. it. It's very subtle. It's almost as if we have a subtle enemy. But it is very subtle. Like when we just, the subtle seeds of dissension about something we just don't like. The eye rolling. Under the breath statements. Even more obvious name calling. Maybe even feeding off disagreements. Animosity. Passive aggressiveness just clicks for me. Just perspectives that you're allowing to cling to that, that really divides people. Oh, you hold to that. Oh, I don't hold to that. You have a different view. It's, it's these subtle things that really allows the grumbling to come up in a church body. And it's just like a cancer that metastasizes and just attacks the entire body. Like, think about the account in number 16 with the sons of Korah. When they came up against Moses... And really what Moses says later on, it says, you came against the Lord. But when the sons of Korah came up against Moses, they didn't like his leadership. They didn't like how things were going. And so they began to grumble and complain. And eventually it led to how many deaths? 14,000. It only takes, we can say it this way, it only takes one Korah to bring death to 14,000. It only takes one to bring death to many. That when we allow, when we just just are complacent with just subtle mumblings and groanings and complainings, and when we just perpetrate that, it just kills a body. And our enemy would love nothing more than to nurture grumbling and mumbling and now disputing within the body of Christ. 
Complaining is destructive. In a local church, if you have 200 people, you got 200 opinions. And let me tell you something. 200 opinions don't agree. Because <laughs> there's going to be two different opinions. Man, we just got this piano, and Pastor Eric, it's black. It's not brown like the old one. So now it doesn't match the walls. Look, it clashes with the carpet. Now, I don't know. It, what, what was, what, why do we do this one? And why do, we, why do we put it on the right side? And it should be on the left side so that when it reverberates off the wall, then it comes back. You know, it, we can have all sorts of things. No one complained about the piano, by the way. But, and I don't know nothing about clashing. So. But it's very subtle. The very small things that are so important to me. It's about what I want, how it should look. What about when things get uncomfortable for you? When maybe it challenges your preferences, what's the state of your heart before God? At the end of the day, as a church body, we should be content with this. 1 Timothy 6, 8, we have food and clothing. We should be content. Hear me, like this is it's very subtle, and we have to see the heart of God in this. It's not about any agenda of man, of me, or anyone else, but to see the heart of God. He cares about your obedience, but God cares about how you view everything in your life. He cares about how you view those difficult relationships. He cares about how you view the difficult circumstances that are awaiting you tomorrow that are awaiting you this afternoon. God cares how you view every single struggle in your life. And our temptation is to grumble against it and to say it's just so hard, and so therefore now I'm just mad or just bitter, or, you know, I'm just apathetic. I'm just, it's fine. God is good. And, you know, he's not good in that situation. It's very subtle for us to succumb to this and to complain because, really, it's attacking what I want what I think I deserve. This doesn't mean that we ignore genuine concerns because the goal of even addressing genuine concerns is the good of others. Like to, to address something that's a problem is the purpose is so that it helps others, not just me. So it doesn't mean we ignore genuine concerns, but we realize that at times, how often are my complaints self-serving? How often are my grumbling self-serving? How often are disputes between people self-serving? James 4 reminds us, what is the reason for disputes among you? Is it not the pleasures of your flesh, the lust of your flesh, waging war with one another? Like, what are these disputes coming from? It's coming from the desires of my flesh, the members of what I want and how I want it. And this person here is in my way, so move over or I'm going to run you down. That's where it's coming from. In what context do we apply this? He says, all things without grumbling and disputing. So that we do present ourselves as not just children of God, but blameless, innocent, above reproach in this dark world where we shine out as lights. When you go to work, do we fall in line with the coworkers who love to complain and mock management because of the way things are done? Like, why, why do we do it this way? This is dumb here. Like, why, why, why do we do it this way? When really the better way to do that is if there's a genuine concern that would impact the good of everyone, then let's me talk to my supervisor one-on-one. 
And if he doesn't do anything about it, I'll still submit gladly because God placed him there. Do we grumble at home against our spouses, our children? Young folks, do y'all grumble against your parents that God has placed over you? Grumble against teachers like this can impact everyone, that we are all can fall prey to this. And if we really want to get to the heart of it, like how much in this grumbling are we presuming upon our rights as human beings when we complain? Like how much are we really presuming upon our rights? What do I mean by that? What right do we have to complain about anything in our life? You just stop and think. Like what right do you have to complain about anything in your life? Anything. Psalm 24 reminds us that the earth is whose? The earth is the Lord's. But not just that, the fullness thereof. Everything in this world is the Lord's. Every person is the Lord's. The fullness thereof and they that dwell therein. So what right do we have as human beings to complain about anything when it all belongs to the Lord? Everything in your life is God's. You can cling to it, but guess what? If he wants to, it's his. But take it away. What right do we have to complain when we realize everything is God's in my life? My time, my money, my resources, my children, my spouse, every single thing is God's. So we presume upon my right that I can grumble and complain because this is mine. But guess what? It'll get repossessed in a second by the God of the universe if he wants So we need to stand out as lights in a dark world. And look where Paul directs this motivation now. Because I love where Paul is always pointing the churches when he's exhorting them in obedience. He says in verse 16 that we are to be holding holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor did I toil in vain. At the end of the day, he's concerned most. He says that when he looks ahead to the day of Christ, I can see that my toiling, my running for you, my my, my sacrificial service for you was not for nothing. That I will see in the day of Christ when believers stand before the judgment scene of Christ to receive the rewards, he will see as this was not for nothing, but they they persevered. They, they They were steadfast. And this was not for nothing, it wasn't for vain, it wasn't in vain. That he's looking ahead to a, the day of Christ. He's looking beyond the world, he's looking beyond his circumstances, and he's looking toward the day of Christ. The backdrop of this perverse and crooked generation is with the lights shining brightly. And so it demands that the, these lights, that, that we shine brightly. And how do we shine brightly? By holding fast the word of light. He says, don't grumble, don't complain, right, so that we can be children of God. He says, now, how are we we doing this? By holding fast the word of life. Now, that that phrase, the way he phrases this phrase of word of life, it indicates here that we are holding on to this eternal life, this message of life, and we're not just to hold on to it, but you can really interpret it as holding out this word of life amongst this dark and perverse generation. That why can we rejoice? Why can we be glad? Why can we resist grumbling, complaining? Because I realize the life that I have in Christ, and now I'm holding it out amongst this dark world that needs to know this life, that needs to know this message 
message of life, that Christ gives life to the dead sinners, that to come to this Christ, repent of your sins, believe upon him, and have life. And so we resist the grumbling, complaining when things are difficult because we realize what we have and we also realize what the world needs. And we ought to be a testimony and a light that shines brightly by showing what we have and why the world needs it. So we hold fast to this. And so we should be free from complaining. What should characterize your attitude in obedience, your attitude in all things? Free from complaining. But secondly, should be full of rejoicing. Full of rejoicing. And that's where he ends these, na- these last couple of verses here. Full of rejoicing. As it's been said time and time again that Philippians is the epistle of joy. And yes, we must work out our salvation in growing obedience, but that obedience should be joyful obedience. Now, the the central command here, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Like, we don't want to just stop grumbling, stop complaining, but we must rejoice. But what hinders our rejoicing? What hinders our rejoicing? Our rejoicing is hindered when our expectations are are anchored in our own desires. When I'm expecting things to work out in accordance with what I want, when that doesn't happen, I'm not going to rejoice. I'm going to complain. And so our, our rejoicing is hindered when we anchor our desires in our own, or anchor our expectations in our own desires. So it looks like this. I'll rejoice when my son comes to saving faith. Like That's when I really rejoice. I'll rejoice when I get a relaxing day. It's been a tough week. I'll rejoice on Saturday. I'll rejoice when. Like, we, 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 we're not rejoicing. We don't rejoice because I don't have a reason to rejoice. Look what happened. Look at my life. I don't, why should I rejoice right now? My kids are acting up. My, my husband's acting up. My wife's acting up. My boss is acting up. Everybody's acting up. Like, why should I rejoice? I'll rejoice when. And that frame of mind, when we think about it that way, when I'll rejoice when is already a problem, because we shouldn't rejoice when, rather we should rejoice now. We rejoice now because of who God is. We rejoice now because of God's promises. We rejoice now because I know what God is doing in me. I rejoice now because I know what God promised me. I rejoice now because I realize my hope is not in this world, but in the day of Christ I'm looking ahead. I rejoice now because I know where my hope is anchored. I rejoice now because Christ is good every day. I rejoice now because the Spirit is faithful and present with me. I rejoice now because God sustains me from going crazy. I rejoice now. I rejoice now because who God is and what he has promised me, and I know it is difficult for me right now, but I can rejoice. And Paul himself says he rejoices, but look, look what he says. He says, even if I am being poured out, because he, now he's pointing to his own affliction, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. And he uses this imagery of a drink offering. We're very familiar with sacrifices in the Old Testament. But the drink offering was a common sacrifice given, not only in the Old Testament, but also just in other pagan rituals, where they were, after giving the main sacrifice, they would offer it up, and then they would pour out wine or blood or something in front of the sacrifice or on the sacrifice. And essentially, it was to give the essence that now as I pour it out, the the, the, the smoke would go to the nostrils and appease the deity to whom it's being offered. So now the, the, the drink offering is like the cherry on top. 
And Paul here is saying here, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, he's not saying he is a sacrifice, but he says upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, that he's viewing the Philippian sacrifice, he's viewing their obedience as a sacrifice. Paul essentially is saying here, I'm just the compliment. I'm just the cherry on top. That you are sacrificing being poured out. And if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on your behalf, guess what? I still rejoice. That he's rejoicing, even though at his own expense, but he's rejoicing not because things are going to get better for him. And this is not even him talking about his physical death. He's just basically saying, I'm just being poured out on your behalf. I rejoice. And why is he can rejoice in that? Because he realizes it's for their good and God's glory. And remember, he's looking ahead to where? The day of Christ. The day of Christ, I'll have reason to boast. I'll have reason to boast. Not in, him own self, in his own self. He's going to boast because of what Christ is doing to him, in him, and through him. He's rejoicing. And so he says, I can rejoice even though at my own expense, even though I'm suffering, even though it's painful. They had to provide money for him, expenses for him, that they were supporting him. But he says here, no, I'm rejoicing because I know what is good. That's why he's rejoicing. And so then he he says, not only am I going to rejoice, but he says, you should rejoice and, and share my joy with you. I rejoice and share my joy with you all. That then now there is this, this bonding now of rejoicing. Where then he exhorts them in verse 18, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way. And share your joy with me. That he's getting at here, he's rejoicing, but now he's commanding them, rejoice with me. Share your joy with me. In this scenario, it would seem difficult for, for both parties to genuinely rejoice. And to genuinely share their joy with each other because their benefit means the expense of someone else. In other words, the Philippians' progress means Paul's suffering. So how can both rejoice unless they were both rejoicing in something outside of themselves? So we're not called to rejoice at our suffering. We don't rejoice at our pain. But I am rejoicing because God uses this to bring him glory. How else could we count it all joy when we encounter various trials? How else? Our problem is not that we look for reasons to complain. I'm sorry. Our problem is often that we look for reasons to complain rather than we look for reasons to rejoice. Because how do you genuinely rejoice? Because I'm not talking about this just false Christianese, put a smile on your face and just say God is good rejoicing. That's not what I'm talking about. And that's not what Paul's talking about when he's saying rejoice. But what happened with Paul here was he had to die to himself. He had to die to his pleasures. He had to die to his wants in order to truly rejoice in what was good. That to rejoice means to rejoice in the truth. Like 1 Corinthians 13 says that love does not rejoice with unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth. That the only way for us to genuinely rejoice and to have joy in the deepest of sorrows is because we realize my joy is not upon this or on how it turns out, but my joy has always been in who God is and what he's promised to be. That joy, genuine Christian joy, looks outside of self and finds the pleasures and delight in all that God is. 
And do I realize that I am a child of God? And am I even first humbled to realize that if I am a child of God, how humbling that is for me to even utter those words? That I am a child of the most high, sovereign, good, gracious God. And if that's the case, where am I rejoicing? Not in myself. I'm rejoicing that he has promised to be good day and day out. And I long to when I will be present with this God forevermore. Rejoicing, true Christian joy, is not found within self, but it's found outside of self as we look to Christ, who was obedient for our sakes, who died and poured out his blood so that my sins can be forgiven and covered. We won't look at it for the sake of time, but if you notice in Luke 15, look at it later this week. Luke 15, what's giving the account of a lost sheep, a lost coin that's being found. And in those accounts, what you notice there is that something is lost and then something is found. Something is lost and then something is found. And when that happens, what's the response? It says there that there's rejoicing over this. I lied. We're going to look at it real quick. Luke 15, it says, What man among you, if he has humble, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, this communal rejoicing, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And then he says, now that happens in heaven. When one sinner repents, the angels rejoice in heaven. There is not just rejoicing. It's not a personal benefit. But there is now a community, a communal aspect to this rejoicing where not just one person is rejoicing, but many are rejoicing. And why? Because they had the same goal, to see the lost found, to see the dead brought to life. He says, what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And verse 9, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of angel of God, in the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You see here, there's rejoicing, but also there's those who rejoice with her. Why? Because they had the same desire. That someone now came and saw and, and listened to the word of life, and now they know this Christ. Like they're rejoicing in the truth. Now when we talk about genuine Christian joy, it begins there knowing what does God love? What does God love, and do I love what God loves? Do I love what God loves? When you love what God loves, when the Spirit opens your eyes and sanctifies and purifies our selfishness, and we, at the end of the day, I, I just want to love being obedient in this affliction. I know this affliction came my way, but I don't desire first and foremost for it to go away. I just desire to be a, a tool in God's hand to give him glory, to be obedient to him no matter how the other person acts, and that way he is glorified in my obedience. I love that because that's what God loves. He loves a child who just humbly submits to his goodness and does not just force their way but says, Lord, let your will be done, not mine. That I could say with my Savior who said in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, your will, not mine. I've got to love what God loves. 
I have to love obedience. I have to love his glory. And I don't know how he's going to work that out in my life. I don't know how he's going to work that out in this specific situation. But I know one thing to be true. This God is all about his glory. And I'm about God's glory. So what am I going to seek to do? Honor him and obey him and submit to him and not grumble against him and not dispute against him. But rather, I'm going to submit to him and take delight in him because he's going to be glorified in my patience, in my endurance. He's going to be glorified as when I'm just out at all ends, when I'm just down, beaten, trodden. He's going to be glorified when I just go to him in humility. Lord, I have no strength, but you say you give strength to those who have none. I'm going to go to your promises. I'm going to love what you love, and I can rejoice because that's what I love. I rejoice in something outside of myself, and that's what God causes us to do. And so Paul here is saying, I can rejoice, and you ought to rejoice with me because we're both looking at something outside of ourselves. We are looking ahead. We are looking outside to the glory of God. As Christians, we can be the worst testimonies of God's sovereignty when we complain. We can be the worst testimonies of God's sovereignty when we complain. The woe is me attitude. I'm not getting this. Oh, people don't, uh, they didn't do this. No one loves me. I'm not good enough. I'm not getting what I want. We can be just the worst testimonies of God's sovereignty. And so we don't want to just view God's sovereignty as an attribute of his, which it is, but as a supreme comfort to our soul. That because he is sovereign, my soul is comforted because I know whatever happens, it's in his control. So why would I grumble? If he changes it, he'll do it. If he changes, if he, if he removes, if he improves, whatever God does, he's going to do it. So the remedy of of grumbling is not simply to put a smile on, but it's to be broken over our selfishness. We want to be free from complaining. We want to be full of rejoicing. But look here, the remedy there is to be broken over our selfishness. To see how God's glory far surpasses everything. We need to ground our expectations in reality. Hear me, ground our expectations in reality. When you hear that, I think... We first hear, ground my expectations of reality. Well, my reality is this is hard. That's not the reality. If you're in Christ, that's not the reality. The reality is all things work together for good. That's the reality. The reality is the God of Israel never sleeps nor slumbers. That's the reality. The reality is, is God sanctifies and purifies no matter what's going on. That's the reality. We ground our expectations in reality, not just what we see. So we ought to walk by faith not by sight. That if we want to truly throw off the sin of grumbling, if we want to be free from complaining, full of rejoicing, we need to ground our expectations in reality. And it flows out of just the humility that we see in Philippians 2 of this Lord who laid down his life and he says, you need to have the same mind among yourselves. Die to your passions. Look toward the day of Christ and have an insatiable appetite for God's glory. Everything he does is for his glory. And so I must be about that. So do you rejoice today, brothers and sisters? Do you rejoice today? I'm not saying, are you waiting for the opportunity to rejoice? But no, do you rejoice today? And if not, why not? 
we're struggling to rejoice, what needs to die? Where am I looking? Have you lost sight of reality? We want to seek to be a shining light amongst the dark and perverse world. That the world is marked with grumbling, complaining. It's marked with self. And we must be lights. It was Charles Spurgeon who gave this illustration of, of he was speaking of uh, how a bright star and even a moon may draw attention to itself. Why? Because the dark sky around it. That you see bright stars, you see bright moons because of the dark sky behind it. But the sun, he says, being so bright draws attention to what's being lit by its light. So we don't look at the sun, we look at what the sun's lighting up. And in a real way, he makes the point that we should let our light so shine so that people see just not us, but we see what's being lit because of our life. That when people look at you, when they see how you endure, when they see how you're not full of grumbling, when they see you don't dispute, they should not just look at you, but they see now your life. That they should not see just um, in, in a sense that we don't see the doctrine that we taught. Oh, sorry, excuse me. I want to flip that around. We want people to see not just how we taught the doctrine that we taught, but they want us to see the actual doctrine itself. That we don't want them to see how we lived our life. We want them to see the lesson of our life. That we don't want them just to look at us or how we said something or how we lived, but we want, us to, we want them to see the message of our life. We want them to see the doctrine itself of our life, not how we lived it. That they should be paying attention to what was said and how it was lived out. And what does that say about the God whom they claim? That our light should shine so, so that people see the lesson that was lived rather than the life itself. And that should be the mark of Christians, the mark of believers who have been changed by the work of the Holy Spirit as they look upon Christ. And that should be a testimony. That is the greatest testimony where we endure and live life free from complaining and full of rejoicing because we have a different purpose. We have a different perspective. and We have a different end. That the life of a believer now can truly, as Paul says time and time again in a letter, to rejoice in the Lord always. And so I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we, we, we need this word. We need to be reminded of this word. And God, in many ways, we fall short of this word. But we're so thankful for the shed blood of Christ on our behalf. We stand before you forgiven and free because of his work. And so, God, I pray that we truly would be children of the light in this dark world. In Christ's name, amen.